But we're in Psalm 27, continuing in our series, our Summer in the Psalms. Let's read the word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, mine adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Father, now we pray for the unction and anointing and illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage that we may be transformed by the word of God and sanctified by it. Let us be convinced and convicted and let us be change that we may leave this place different than the way we came in. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, one day in 1819, 3,000 miles off the coast of Chile, in one of the most remote regions of the Pacific Ocean, 20 American sailors watched their ship flood with seawater. They'd been struck by a sperm whale, which had ripped a catastrophic hole in the ship's hull. As their ship began to um, sink beneath the swells, the swells, the men all huddled together in three small whaleboats. These were the men of the whale ship Essex. They were 10,000 miles from home and more than a thousand miles from the nearest scrap of land. In their small boats, they carried only rudimentary navigational equipment and limited supplies of food and water. Their story would later inspire parts of Moby Dick. Now, even in today's world, their situation would have been dire. They were thousands of miles from anywhere where anyone could help them, and no one on land had any idea that anything had gone wrong. There was no search party coming, no one was looking for them, 
And most of us have never found ourselves in any kind of frightening situation, even remotely close to that. These men of the Essex had to make a plan, but they had very few options. In his fascinating account of the disaster, Nathaniel Philbrook wrote, quote, these men were about as far from land as it was possible to be than anywhere on earth. The men knew that the nearest islands they could reach were the Marquesa Islands, some 1,200 miles away. But they'd heard some frightening rumors. They'd been told that these islands and several others around them were populated by cannibals. The men pictured coming ashore only to be murdered and eaten for dinner. Another possible destination was Hawaii, but given the season, the captain was afraid they'd be struck by severe storms. Now, the last option was the longest and most difficult, to sail 1,500 miles due south in hopes of reaching a certain band of winds that could eventually push them toward the coast of South America. But they knew that they would likely be stretched of their supplies and possibly run out of food and water. To be eaten by cannibals, to be battered by storms, or to starve to death before reaching land, these were the fears that danced in the imaginations of the men of the Essex. And as it turned out, the fear they chose to listen to governed whether they lived or died. After much deliberation, these men finally made a decision. Terrified of cannibals, they decided to forego the closest islands and instead embarked on a longer and much more difficult journey to South America. And after more than two months at sea, the men ran out of food as they knew they might. And they were still quite far from land. When the last of the survivors were finally picked up by two passing ships, less than half of the men were left alive, and some of them had resorted to their own form of cannibalism. <clears throat> Herman Melville, who used this story as research for Moby Dick, wrote years later, and from dry land, all the sufferings of these miserable men of the Essex might in all human possibility have been avoided had they immediately after leaving the wreck, steered straight for Tahiti, but as Melville put it, they feared cannibals. Fear is a paralyzing force that incapacitates people and causes people to make irrational decisions. One reason for this, as Walker points out, is that fear lives in the imagination and the imagination tells vivid stories about our future. Most of the time, those fears are overblown, but every now and again, our fears can predict the future. Sometimes a fear of cancer comes true. Sometimes a fear that something bad will happen actually can come true. Now, David was the author of Psalm 27, and he knew a thing or two about fear. I'm talking about fear this morning, not as some subject of pop psychology, but because the Bible deals so much with fear. And over and over and over again, Scripture commands us to be courageous, to be strong, and not to fear, 
but it seems that fear has an important role to play in the life of every believer. In other words, we want to dispense with fear quickly because as a culture, we don't see a whole lot of use for fear. We want to either pretend fear doesn't exist or we want to be done with it and overcome it as quick as we possibly can. But what if fear not only has something to teach us, but has a role to play in the development and cultivation of our faith? When we think of David, we know that David confronted fear. It was David who overcame his fear and defeated Goliath. Now, I could say, so therefore be like David, but the moral of that story is not just have more courage to fight your giants, because in that story, David is a type of Christ, and we're Saul and his army who are petrified. But it would be wrong to say that David was never afraid. We know from last week that David had many shortcomings. David wrote many of the Psalms. And he certainly had fears that he faced. And in this passage, in Psalm 27, David is facing down some fears. John Piper says, the painful fear, the guilty fear, the craven fear, the humiliating fear, all such fear will one day be taken away, but only in the way that God intends. And in his time, we should not be done with it in the wrong way or too soon. In other words, we should not be so quick to dispense with fear or try to conquer our fear. We should first try to discern why fear is there in the first place and maybe what it can tell us about ourselves. C.S. Lewis also commented on the temporary importance of fear. And he writes, perfect love, we know, casts out fear, 1 John 4.18, but so do several other things. Ignorance, alcohol, passion, presumption, and stupidity. It's very desirable that we should all advance to that perfection in love in which we shall fear no longer, but it is very undesirable until we have reached that stage that we should allow any inferior agent to cast out fear. In other words, fear has to be dispensed with through the right means, through the right agency, and so we look to God. David was besieged in this passage by violent enemies who were like vicious animals. In verse 2, he says, evildoers assail me to devour me. He was disowned by his parents. Verse 10, for my mother and my father have forsaken me. And he was targeted by slanderous accusations. Verse 12, false witnesses have risen against me. Violent enemies who were like vicious animals, disowned by his mother and father, and targeted by slanderous lies and accusations. Those were the things that, the fears that David was staring down, asking for God's help in this passage. Now, as modern people, what are we afraid of? What do we fear? When you were a kid, likely you feared that there was something in the dark spots of your room at night. As you got older, you started to fear uh, different things. We fear dying. We have incredible anxiety about our health, and for good reason. We eat terrible. We have terrible sleeping habits. We treat our bodies poorly. 
We fear not being perceived as successful. And this is mostly in our own eyes because we judge and compare ourselves to other people. So that's another fear we have. It happens all the time, whether we realize it or not, we are constantly judging ourselves. I don't know about women, I know that as a man, it is something I'm always struggling against, fearing that I have not been, especially as I get older, you get to a certain age, and maybe this is where midlife crisis comes from. You know, when you're maybe in your 20s or early 30s, you think, I have time. But as a guy gets in his 40s or 50s, he starts analyzing what he's done because he realizes that time is running out. And so we feel, fear not being perceived as successful. Another thing we fear is material mediocrity. We believe the ads in the marketing, whether we realize it or not. And they don't come right out and say it, but essentially the message is, your life won't be full and complete or happy if you don't have this or if you don't have that. We fear not being able to control our image. This is what Instagram and Facebook and social media is all about. It's about controlling our image, and it's this, it's this horrible cycle because as you look at other people pretending to live a life better than you, you start judging your own life. And so we fear not being able to control our image in the eyes of others. And most importantly, and this may be the most powerful fear we have of all, is we fear that the people that mean the most to us won't love us. And this is especially true about God. It's a daily fear that we struggle with, believing that we're going to do something possibly to make God stop loving us. That's a fear that lives in us whether we are able to name it or not. In William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, the book, not the movie, by the way, the book is incredible, not for kids, but it's excellent. Father Marin is the older and wiser priest, and he's having a conversation in the hallway with Father Karras as they take a break from the exorcism. And the book is filled with so many incredible points about ministry and spiritual life as Christians. But one of the things Father Marin, the older, wiser priest, says to the younger priest is that all unbelief at its core is an inability to believe that God can love us, that we're lovable. I don't know how theologically accurate that is, but I know that there's a lot of truth in that. And so there's a fear we have not, of only, not, not only of being unloved by others, but being unloved by God. And you know the interesting thing about all of these is that they all revolve around things we may lose. Our life, our self-respect, material satisfaction, our reputation, love. All of those fears enter in because we're afraid of losing all of these things. Now, how did David deal with his fears? Well, the first thing that David did from this passage is he beheld the beauty of God. You know, the way we've been created is amazing because whether we're beholding a dreary landscape or a spectacular landscape, you're likely doing the same thing, which is really nothing but beholding. But the experience between both is night and day. When you're sitting maybe on your porch and it's cold and dreary and it's overcast, or maybe you're sitting in your living room with the TV off, that is an entirely different experience than standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. 
Now, in both, you're really doing the same thing, which is simply beholding, but we're made to have such different reactions. The supreme beauty of a natural wonder or a meadow, a a blooming meadow in spring, can give us incredible deep joy and personal satisfaction, can it? Now, David's supreme priority is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And so, for David, that's, that's a remedy for him, for fear. It's to behold the beauty of God. In verse four, he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Gazing isn't just a one-time glimpse, but a steady and sustained focus. It's not petitionary prayer, it's praising, admiring, and enjoying God just for who he is. To gaze upon and behold the beauty of God is to appreciate and admire and be in awestruck wonder at God just for who and what he is. Not for what God does for us necessarily or not what we can get from God necessarily. Tim Keller says, religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. And so to gaze upon the Lord just for his beauty is transforming, and it transforms our fears. To sense God's beauty in the heart is to have such pleasure in him that you're able to rest content. And this is one thing our anxious culture, our culture that is filled with so many fears and anxieties needs to hear today is the the message of contentment. And we know as believers that's only found in God. That is only found in the certain and true knowledge of the beauty and constancy of God's faithfulness. And so we might want to ask God in prayer to help us experience that sense of beauty and wonder, to ask him to help us love him for himself alone. The second thing we see is David moving from fear to trust. When you read this psalm, you recognize that this is not theoretical for David. David is not talking about fear in some abstract sense where he's just talking about fears in general. And this is helpful for us because we don't struggle with some generic idea of fear. We have real fears. And every one of us, if we lined up in maybe a confession booth and I said to you, what is the thing you fear the most, you probably all have an answer. I do. There is something that I fear. There are things that I fear. And so for David, this isn't theoretical. There are real fears. There are real concrete things going on in his life, troubled times he's living in. David is this amazing, amazing kaleidoscope of the grandeur and glory of God and also of the human condition of fear and trouble and temptation and lust. And it's like it all comes together in this one individual. David is struggling through some serious difficulties. But the beauty of God enables him to live in a type of, in a kind of confidence and peace that is able to overcome those fears. He says in verse eight, look at verse eight, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. 
The very next part of that verse, David says, don't hide your face from me. If our hearts delight in God and his face, then we can contemplate losing earthly joys without fear. I mentioned a minute ago that all those five areas, and there are more, but all those five areas of fear are all revolve around things we're afraid to lose. We're clinging so tightly to these things that mean so much to us, but when we look and gaze upon the beauty of God for who he is, we can consider losing earthly joys without being afraid because the one thing that we have, which is communion with God, communion with the living God, our greatest treasure is safe. And if that's safe, if communion and fellowship with God is safe, if a relationship with the creator of all things is secure, if our salvation is rock solid, we know that God is faithful to keep us because he's the one who called us to this life in the first place, there's nothing to be afraid of. We may lose those things. This is not, this is not the message where you hear from the preacher, none of those fears are ever gonna come true. This is not the message where you hear all of those fears are just voices in your head, just walk, dismiss them. I mean, life is rough, and bad things sometimes happen. <clears throat> but God is faithful in being with us and bringing us through every trial and every circumstance. And the one thing that we don't ever have to fear is that communion and fellowship with him is ever in danger as his people. So what is there to be afraid of? Instead of focusing on our life and our health or success or possessions or our image or what other people feel about us, what would happen if we were to truly seek the face of God, truly seek the face of God? How might that transform fear into trust? I remember years ago reading the story of David Wilkerson. Some of you, you know who David Wilkerson is? Died a few years ago in a car accident. I think he was up there in age, but he was the pastor of some small Midwestern church, probably not St. Louis, maybe even smaller, maybe like Iowa or something. <laughs> and he said every night he watched two hours of television before going to bed and thought to himself, he said he was secure and comfortable in his pastorate. He had a small, nice congregation and he was, he was living, he liked his area and he liked the calling he had, but he just thought to himself, I just wonder what would happen if I prayed two hours at night before Watch, instead of watching two hours of television. Now don't hear me say, so go home and now, if you wanna, if you wanna experience God's you know, love, go home and pray two hours every night. It, it'd be a good thing, but that's not the message. He started praying two hours every night, and God, he felt, called him to New York City. And he went, I think in the early 60s, the late 50s, to New York City, New York City and started a ministry there. And the ministry took off. And I've always thought about that over the years. I think I read that in my teens. I don't know how I came across the book of David Wilkerson and read that, but it always made me think that God is there just waiting for us to pursue him deeper, closer. That there isn't a status quo to the relationship that we have with God where God says, we're good, you know, you know here and no further. It's always made the impression on me that God is just there waiting for us to come closer, to press you know, beyond the veil, so to speak, to seek his face like David is talking about and to gaze on his beauty 
to truly enter in and seek the face of God. So what would happen if we spent our time gazing on the face of God, beholding the beauty of God? What would happen would likely be that God and his awesome being and essence would become the object of our desires instead of some of those other things that create anxiety and fear. So what is the temporary importance of fear? Our fears show us where the heart's treasures are truly located. Tim Keller said, follow the pathway of fear back into your heart and you may just discover the thing that you love more than God. Is there something we might love more than God? Is there something you might love more than God that you're so afraid of losing that it is disabling you from having fellowship with him, from having the kind of peace and fellowship that God puts on offer for all believers? What is that thing? What is that thing we love, you love, more than God that creates anxiety and fear? Let's pray. Father, show us your beauty. We pray now and attract our hearts. Capture our imagination, the imagination that often creates vivid stories about our future, which are grounded not in trust but out of fear. Help us, Lord God, to find pleasure in serving you and... Lord, to press beyond that imaginary border of the status quo of our walk with you, that we might gaze upon your beauty and inquire into your temple, that we might seek the very face of God and in the process, Lord God, find our heart's very contentment. Vanquish our fears, Lord. And let us look to Christ who overcame the fear of the cross for us that we might have courage in our daily lives because we can be assured for your love for us. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.